The Raw Rugby Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Raw Rugby Podcast. I'm Brett McKay. We're back for a very special bonus episode 30 and your place for the biggest and best rugby discussion around is the raw.com.au Australia's biggest sporting debate. It's been a busy week for the pod and as energetic as ever is my co-host Harry Jones. Hello mate, how are you? How's it Brett? I bet you're feeling pretty good this week. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's been a good week. It's been a busy week, though, mate. This is the third of four pods within eight days that we've done with instant reactions at either end of the week. Um, but this is another special episode, as I mentioned. It's another a longer form rugby chat that you've done uh, just in just just recently with Leinster and former England coach Stuart Lancaster, along with the Raw's resident expert analyst Nick Bishop, um, and they both joined you for a chat. Fairly recently, yeah. I think we, I think we always wanted to have different speeds for our listeners, yeah. um, and may, maybe it's because we have so many different types of listeners. You know, we have the Italians, the Swedes, the Australians, <laughs> the South Africans. But yeah. we wanted to have a longer form, and so from time to time, we're going to sit down with people notable in their profession. Hopefully, as good as Stuart Lancaster. My goodness, uh, I think everyone's going to really enjoy this chat. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. It's a it's a it's a longer form chat. It's it's a bit timeless as well. So this is um, you know it's the start of the rugby championship. But realistically, everything that Stuart and Nick talk about uh, in this chat could applies at any time. Realistically, so let's just get straight into it. Harry Jones in conversation with Stuart Lancaster and Nick Bishop. The Raw Rugby Podcast. I'm happy to be in the the pod. With Stuart Lancaster, uh, famous coach, academician, teacher, uh, rugby thinker in mind. And then to complete the picture, from somewhere in Wales, and looks like he's in a closet, cupboard, or kitchen. Utility uh, room. It's the utility room. It's the utility writer and the man who fills in on the roar for every conceivable subject, including Persian poetry, Nick Bishop. How's it, Stuart? How's it, Nick? Yes. Very well, Harry, how are you? So it might sound very artificial, but sometimes I'll say your names just because I've learned in potting that it helps if everyone knows who's talking and who's answering. But uh, Stuart, I wanted to, uh, first of all, introduce you a little bit better. I did notice that you went to school in a place where Mr. Bean also went to school. And I wanted to ask you first up, have you met Rowan Atkinson? Uh, I met him when I was, he was old, he's older than me. So when he came back, he visited the school as like an old boy, an old Sir Began, he was called. Uh, and uh, he signed my geography book at the time. Uh, but uh, I don't think he'd remember that, that meeting. It was probably somewhere in between 1984, 85, I'd say. Uh, but no, so, yeah, we went to the same school. It's a very small school. Um, about 380 pupils when I left uh, in 88 uh, on the west coast of Cumbria called St. Bees. Uh, so boarding school, I went there when I was 10 years old uh, and left at 18 and went to university from there. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I've always remarked upon this is how much we don't leave school behind. I mean, it carries, it stays with us our whole lives. Um, one thing I do before I interview someone, uh, I try to imagine what type of uh, book or literature they liked when they were a kid. Uh, for me, it was Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. 
Can you remember what types of books you like to read when you were a kid, or is that just too far gone? Uh, no, no, no. I'm just shaking my head because I'm not sure I was a big book reader. If I'm being perfectly honest, I was more a doer than a reader. Uh, like I was a, you know, I wasn't like hugely academic. I did okay, um, got through to to university, um, but no, my my passion, my background was uh, from a farming background. My my parents uh, were um, owned a dairy farm, and I I was brought up on there. Um, but my passion really was outdoors and sports. So um, uh, I had to read books, but only because I did English for A-level. But that was um, <laughs> forced. David Copperfield and uh, the like. Force fed. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, I, I'm actually a far more avid reader now uh, than I ever was then. And, you know, if you looked, you can't quite see. I mean, I, I'm here in Dublin now. Uh, I've got this one bedroom flat that I'm in at the moment. And uh, I'm surrounded by books, you know, leadership books, books on rugby, books on sport, books on decision making, coaching books. So I'm a far more avid reader now than I was was then. Yeah. Do you find you read? Um, I mean, can you draw from other sports? Is there a lot of analogies between other sports, other disciplines that you that you can use in rugby? Yeah, all the time, hundred um, uh, percent. American football would be one, really. Uh, obviously, that would lend itself. As sort of, I've been, I was lucky to get to spend time with the Atlanta Falcons, and you know whether it's the the Patriots or whoever, you know, there's there's plenty of good books on Bill Belichick, and uh, the the probably two most influential coaches in my time um, who wouldn't even know I existed, but John Wooden and Bill Walsh would be the two really uh, American coaches who I would have read virtually every well, every book that they've been written or been written on them. Um, so. Yeah, I think there's any innovation sport, you know, I'd read coaching books yeah. on, on hockey, you know, um, soccer, you, you name it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, actually, I listened to an interview with uh, Scott Robertson, who's the man of the moment. And uh, because he's the only New Zealand coach who hasn't been added to the New Zealand coach coaching setup, uh, he, he said he went to Cirque du Soleil to actually watch what disciplines they brought. So it's interesting how we reach outside. Nick, um, I was wondering about that too. You actually draw quite a bit in your writing from the NFL, from uh, coaches that are outside rugby to find analogies. Is that because rugby is still somewhat, um, I mean, we're still bridging the gap between amateur and professional. And, and it's, it's obvious you would look at a sport that has been around for longer in the professional era. Uh, yes, and it's a way of refreshing thought as well. Um, you know, if you start to think in, the categories that American basketball coach or American football coach might have to think in it, it starts to break down some of the categories you've got in your own thinking. And Stuart and I actually met through a book because uh, I wrote a book called Seeing Red many years ago and he read it. And that was the, the reason that we first got in touch in late 2011, wasn't it, Stuart? Yeah. Yeah. when you were coaching the Saxons and doing all the development work at the RFU. So he read the book, um, we got in touch, and that's how, how things happen, you know. So I think readership has an important part to play in connecting people, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, Stuart, does Nick come to meetings uh, for Leinster or present things only in uh, videos and, and, and pictures? Because in his articles in the Roar at this point, he's about three to one picture to, to words. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it, it tends to be remote. We, 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 we play a few games in Wales, obviously with Leinster. And uh, when we're in Wales, you know, I try and uh, catch up with Nick and he can pop down to the team hotel or whatever. And um, obviously during the, the England time playing a coaching against Wales, 
but um, no, the work, the work Valencia is more remote. And he, the reason what drew me to Nick actually was his writing style. Um, so I've, I've done it a few times where I've read a book and I've sourced the author and thought, I need to get in contact with this author because the stuff they've said or done or written that's really captured me and I wanted to sort of follow up. And that's really what happened by reading the book, Seeing Red. Um, it was the story of the, the analyst. It was his, his um, interpretation of what the analyst went through, who was working under Graham Henry, you know, and Steve, and all these guys, you know, in, during that time in um, the Welsh, the Welsh, like late, well, early 2000s, wasn't it, Nick, really? And um, yeah. uh, so, so from that point onwards, I, I then realised that Nick was a very good, had a very good authority, a very good writing style uh, on the game. And um, when he then sent me through some of the analysis work he'd done when he was working for Wales back in the day, um, I just really liked his style. He, get, he gave me a lot more, like when a, an analyst gives you information, it tends to be X's and O's, stats, um, percentages. And Nick would tell me the story of, say, say like, my first tour was South Africa in 2012. And, you know, I'd not been to South Africa before. I was the England coach and we were playing a three-test series and playing two midweek games. And suddenly I'm in this interim role, having got the full-time job. And Nick coloured in really what it was going to feel like and um, be like in, in South Africa at the time. Uh, and, and so it's gone on, you know what I mean? So he's got this really very unique style, which I'm sure you guys appreciate on the raw because, you know, he's a very clever way of, of hooking you in through either a story or anecdote um, and he brings it to life and it's more than just about the actual X's and O's and like I say the, the percentages. Yeah I think that makes sense and I think our game our sport rugby is different from other sports and I've probably spent most of my life wondering exactly what that means. Um, we can get into the uh, the way coaches and captains work together it's different from other sports but I think part of it is that even the game itself and who won the game can be a very surprising um, result. And there are some sports where you dominate and you dominate. And if I'm playing tennis and I'm not having any, any unforced errors and I'm hitting more winners, I'm going to win. But in rugby, uh, there's no stat that shows you who's going to win. Uh, Nick, you've talked a lot about how people can camp inside a 22 and have nothing to show for it. Or on the other hand, you can have people that's uh, teams that's... Yeah, that's a sore point at the moment. We don't <laughs> talk about that. <laughs> or you can have teams that actually uh, are very surgical and efficient. And it, uh, you look at the stat sheet and it almost is meaningless. So I think you're looking for moments. Sometimes you pick out moments in a match the turn as opposed to, um, you know, saying the obligatory, oh my, someone had 80% territory and possession and didn't win. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, if you compare it to American sports that we've talked about, uh, like a basketball, you've got 30 seconds to score a basket. American football, you've got three plays before you have to kick the ball away. And so it's a much more static game, whereas rugby exists in motion uh, nearly all of the time. So you have to find a different way to describe it because you can't just do the same thing that Bill James did with baseball and describe every play where the batter hit it, you know, where the pitcher was pitching, because rugby is too um, fluid for that. So you have to find a different mode of description. Yeah, and uh, Stuart, the two coaches you cited, Wooden and uh, Walsh, I think they're the ones that are always called geniuses. And uh, I, I was also thinking about the fact that their players seem to love them. I mean, long 
after they're gone, they truly love them. And I was, I was, I was uh, reflecting on that, that you've been for a very long time, teacher, uh, coach, uh, uh, the head of uh, academies or high performance units, you seem to be taking a very long view of this game. Um, is that how you see it, or did you just happen upon this pathway? I mean, was it was it more intentional? Um, probably, if you take if you draw it back to like my early twenties. So I did my sports. So I was always interested in sport, and I was a bit of a jack of all trades, really. Um, so if you said play squash, tennis, hockey, football, rugby, I'd, I'd probably have played the lot, really. Um, and then I did my PGC, and I was very lucky that the people at the time were great teacher educators, um, and they gave me the really good foundation. And then when I got into teaching, I genuinely loved it. I loved the variety. I enjoyed the, the company of the, the children. I enjoyed helping them get better. Um, and it was just I, just, I just loved being a teacher. And anyway, so I wasn't really going down a coaching path. Obviously, the game went professionally in 19 95 and I um, uh, went professional with it to a certain extent. Um, I took a year out of teaching and had uh, a year full time, but I actually really didn't enjoy it. You know, I was, I was, I had too much time on my hands. You know, I wasn't keen to have a full Wednesday off when, you know, you're supposed to rest. And I was a bit like, I feel I should be doing something more constructive. Um, I didn't play every weekend. So I felt I should have been like running, running a team or anyway. So I went back to teaching, but then I got injured and then that led into the academy job that I got, um, which was a really great grounding in leadership coaching and management. So I'd, I'd, I'd got the sort of teaching pedagogy and, and the experience of teaching, but now I was layering on the leadership and management pieces of the jigsaw um, and going on courses. And I was very well supported by Kevin Byron at the time, who's head of coach development of the RFU, Brian Ashton, um, who sort of mentored me from a rugby point of view, and um, Bill Bezik from a psychological point of view. So three great mentors um, during that time. And, and just opened the doors to all sorts of things. So I think, did I stumble into coaching? Probably not, no. Um, but once I realised my passion for it, you know, nothing has ever wavered in my mind to think I'm on the wrong path, ever. Um, you know, in the ups and downs of um, 2015, um, you know, I was never, I was never put off. Um, and uh, um, I'm still as passionate about it now. I'm 50, 52 years old. I keep saying to Nick, you know, I think I'll probably coach till I'm maybe mid-70s. Uh, and then start some sort of career in coach development. It just feels like that now, Stuart, that's all. <laughs> but no, no. Genuinely, genuinely, genuinely love the process of, like, constructing sessions, um, thinking about how we can help the team win. I mean, obviously, the sport, going back to your, your, your point about rugby, why is it unique? Is it because it's played... Um, emotion has a huge amount to play in the, in the outcome. And if the... The connection that the players have together, the connection the players have to the identity of the team, um, all those things all play a part in in the outcome, as well as good coaching. Um, and uh, you can't win a game without the connection and the emotion piece. Um, uh, and obviously, align that with good coaching and, and good players. You know, that's the that's the magic. Yeah, you know, and at your position and where you are now, it encompasses so many things. I imagine from hour to hour, the role could look very different. I mean. Um, head coaching at a test level is almost like a CEO. You're, you're doing diplomatic duties. Um, you're um, you're th thinking of X and O's, X's and O's, but also you're trying to get to know your players. I don't know about you, Nick, but my favorite teachers, because I was a guy, I was a kid, always in trouble, getting cuts, 
being sent to the, the, the harshest boarding schools in the wilderness in Africa, uh, where they, you know, just try to break you. And really the only coach, the only teacher, the adult figures that I really liked were my coaches. I mean, there's think something about a coach and a player, uh, maybe even a coach and a captain, where you have to form a very, very good bond and believe in each other because there are a lot of times on the field where the plan does not seem to be working. You know, thinking what uh, <clears throat> Stuart was just saying there, I think the thing that I can see in both Stuart and Graham Henry, who I know the best um, of coaches I've supported over the years, is that they are natural teachers. Mm. And they want to teach because they want to learn. And so if they don't do one, they can't do the other. Yeah. Which is why we kind of, and we've discussed this many times, we release so much information publicly about the way we play or the way other teams play is because it, it pushes us to learn more. So there's that symbiosis there that um, in order to be a good teacher, you have to be willing to learn. Uh, that's why Graham Henry swapped roles with Steve Hansen and Wayne Smith, uh, you know, towards the end of their tenure with the All Blacks because they wanted to learn another role and therefore refresh their own teaching. So there's something about the teaching refresh rate there with Stuart and Graham that I think they have in common, a very fast refresh rate. And that's something I can see clearly in both of them. I just always assumed, uh, Nick, that you were doing it as misinformation and releasing, <laughs> releasing all these tactics in order to uh, bamboozle New Zealanders, which apparently just happened. Um, so... <laughs> Before we came on, I referred to it as the uh, Irish miracle. I was I was corrected by both of you, but I mean there is a a rise um, of the Irish system and perceived as maybe before it started to win, it was perceived as too too intricate, too ornate. But it's not really. It's kind of basics. You um, basically drawing from your um, academy days in Leeds, um, your elite rugby, your Saxons. You formed um, a pipeline of talent. Um, I'm struck by the fact that at Leinster, for example, a lot of the a lot of the kids come from the local schools. These are people from the Dublin area, St. Michael's. Uh, you're not um, solving your problems by recruiting uh, or going far afield. Is that fair that you that you wanted to yeah. build something more sustainable? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, you know, I'm 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 coming in at the you know, the, not the end, but but I've come in, like the evolution of Leinster started way before I, I arrived in 2016, definitely. I mean, they won the European Cup um, three times, you know, prior to that. So it, this isn't like just some thing that happens has happened recently. You know, Leinster have, and Munster and the Irish rugby um, programme has always been very strong since the advent of professionalism. As, 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 as the way it's evolved, the provinces of Ireland, um, you know, including Connacht and um, Ulster, um, have uh, always been strong and have always been really well coached. They've been supplemented by some really good overseas coaches and some really good overseas players. Um, and so that collective IP has grown along with a strong sense of identity, a very, very good player development system, very strong school system, as you say, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so when I came into Leinster, you know, there was already many internationals playing at Leinster who had a huge number of experience. I'd I'd coached against a lot of them with England against Ireland during 2012 to 2015. So Joe Schmidt obviously had been, was the coach, you know, so he was a tremendous distributor of knowledge, you know, into the Irish system. And that trickle down effect of Joe is still there to this day. Um, so, 
So then I, I arrive around around 2016 at Leinster. Andy Farrell at this point is already there. You know, Andy Farrell and I and Mike Catt have worked together with England for three or four years. So we know each other pretty well. We're on the similar page. Wasn't and, Andy Farrell one of your assistant coaches? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Andy, Andy came in, he coached Saxons with me and I brought him in on that South Africa. Well, it was the Six Nations 2012ers uh, in my interim period. And then he joined after that South Africa tour in 20, 2012. You know, he, he, he then went on to coach the Lions um, in 2013, along with Graham Rountree as well. So, you know, he's grown his level of experience and then he's worked, gone from England to Ireland, worked under Joe. Um, and obviously he's taken over and he's, you know, he's made the, the job his own. And you can see the success he's made. So leaving England, you know, myself going to Leinster, Mike Cutt going to be the attack skills coach at uh, Ireland, Andy becoming the head coach of Ireland and Graham Rountree going to Munster. There was a lot of IP that, that we uh, generated together that came very quickly into the Irish system. And it's not the only reason by any stretch of imagination, but, but certainly from my point of view at Leinster, I think um, uh, Leo Cullen had been um, put into the role after Matt O'Connor had gone. And um, he was still young and he'd be the first to admit it. You know, he was like finding his feet. So he needed some of the bit more experience. I don't think people really thought it would work because I was obviously, um, I'm trying to think, maybe six or seven years his senior and obviously I haven't coached England. Um, why would I go in there as a number two and sit beneath him? But for me to get back to coaching and working in a high performance environment with a talented group of players was too attractive to turn down. It was outside of England, which was a positive and obviously, but it was commutable um, to get home. So so that was the start of it really. And I think all that's happened in in the in the intervening years into why we've got to this point in Ireland is that we work closely together. The, the Leinster province and the Irish national team are, are very, very similar in terms of the makeup of personnel players. Um, so the cohesion factor is very strong. Um, I think we're very similar in our philosophy in terms of how we see the game and how we coach the game, both at provincial level and at national level. Um, so when you watch both teams play, you'd see a lot more similarities than yeah. differences. And so if you imagine, it's a bit like, I don't know, all the, all, the, all the New Zealand players playing for the Crusaders, which obviously was the case in the past, and they all play a similar format to the to the All Blacks. And it makes this very strong club team into an international team. And uh, um, I think what, what I've tried to do, and a lot of it is taken from my experience of playing against New Zealand. I played against New Zealand six times with England. Like what struck me in that period, and I'm coaching against the, the Dan Carters and the Richie McCaws and... You know, my nonna was, you know, it was an unbelievable team, but it was the simplicity of how they played the game and the mm. the emphasis they put on the core skill and the decision making and the scanning uh, on the back of it. So I guess it all sort of came together um, in how we developed the attacking system and the core skills of the players to be able to deliver it. And then secondly, um, I would say that the evolution of defence in the Northern Hemisphere um, has meant that I've come in as a head coach who coached attack and defence. And I do think that um, as well as Ireland attacked against New Zealand, they also defended very well. True. Uh, and I, I, don't, I don't think that the Southern Hemisphere has quite appreciated the growth of that side of the game in the last five years. And as a consequence, when, you, when you're playing against teams that are really well organised in defence, you have to become better in terms of your attack. So one has forced the other to improve. Um, and... When you talked about the, the miracle, the reason I smiled is because I was like, I honestly believed Ireland were going to win. Um, and um, I didn't think it was going to be easy. 
But I, I think knowing the players I had and looked at the New Zealand defensive system, looking at the New Zealand's attacking uh, design and skill set over the last 12 to 18 months, I, I, I was always confident Ireland were going to be more than, more, more than competitive out there. Well, it, it did take belief, though, because the first test went a strange way and the All Blacks scored in a hurry. But as Nick pointed out on the roar, um, those scores were, I mean, some of those scores were very happenstance. I mean, they were, the ball had to bounce just the right way. Bowden Barrett's interception is a 14-point swing. I mean, because Ireland was away. I could see how the Irish coaching staff would have said, no, we have this. But, but don't forget, it wasn't the first time they'd beaten New Zealand. Like, this isn't like... Like November, they beat them. I mean, but yeah, in, New Ze- in New Zealand, and I think, you know, it's always been a gold standard for our sport is go to New Zealand and win twice in a row. I mean, just try it. It's, uh, it's very difficult to do. Maybe miracle's the wrong way. Maybe it's just... No, but, uh, but, 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 but my point is the belief, the belief is, is based on a solid foundation. Sure. Like, um, you know, where, especially whether you're playing at home or away, um, it's still the foundations of the game, the foundation of the game. So good set piece, good defence quality attack, good skills, composure under pressure, good decision-making, excellent starter plays, right. good plan, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Ireland had all those things in, in, in place, I think, you know, and uh, um, they didn't succumb to the pressure uh, and deserved, deserved winners. Nick, you talked about in your re- most recent article, I think, in Rugby Pass, that don't look for X factor. You know, it's a return to basics that New Zealand will have to do to uh, recover its mojo because right now it's sorely lacking in uh, in something yeah i think they're at the stage where they seem to be looking for outstandingly talented individuals that don't necessarily combine as units or subunits within the team and i think you if you compare the irish midfield with the new zealand midfield in that third test in wellington you know the the comparison was quite brutal, really, because you had Ireland playing a natural number 10 with two centres in Bundyaki and Robbie Henshaw. And Robbie Henshaw's played plenty of football at 13 as well, against a converted wing, a converted fullback, and another converted fullback. And you could see that especially Aki and Henshaw knew exactly what they had to do in the little physical details of the game. And I don't think that was as obvious uh, in guys like Rico Ioani and David Havili. And that's what experience buys you, isn't it? That yeah, you- if you look at the, the, the heir apparent to, um, to Jerome Kano and um, then Sonny Bill Williams and Conrad Smith combinations or whatever, it's been um, a revolving door. There's no one that's actually taken the sixth jersey and the 12-13 uh, complex of a rugby team that may not touch the ball as much as some other players, but is incredibly important for setting ruck targets, setting channels, and uh, refreshing on defense. So you look at um, the teams that are on the up right now, their midfields are incredibly well prescribed. I mean, you know exactly who's playing for the box, France, Ireland, if they're healthy at midfield. The succession plan that that Ireland has built, uh, and obviously, Stuart, you've been a part of that, is that you can slot people in and they do know what they're supposed to play. Um, But if someone does go down, there is a like for like. Is that fair? Yeah, 100%. I think there's clarity on the game plan in -hmm. how we're going to defend and how we're going to attack. I don't think the same clarity exists 
in, in New Zealand at the moment. You know, I think um, when I look at them defensively, um, I can see I can see why Ireland attacked them the way they did. Um, and when I look at their their phase attack and their set piece attack, starter attack, starter plays, I can see again the same level of like uncertainty. So it's not just combinations; it's clarity. So you know, for me, the first thing that comes is clarity of philosophy. Like how how are we going to defend and how are we going to attack and what's our principles of play, and then you build your selection around that. But if you haven't got clarity on those things, right, and then and you are in an ever changing team. It's very, very hard to get that second in, that second sight, you know, that that instinct, um, the ability at the, at the razor sharp end of international rugby to do things on instinct. I mean, the team, like let's say the team that I was coaching against, they had that, you know, they played together for years, you know, everyone was like 60, 70, 80, 90 caps. But but the challenge, the challenge for New Zealand is always going to be the transitional period out of that, um, both from a coaching perspective and from a playing perspective the post 2015 I don't think they've ever really managed to hit the same heights since then do you do you like attack or defense more as a coach I actually I actually um love coaching both what what, what I mean we're in preseason at the moment where I put my attention would be mainly on attack at the start and again maybe if we're talking about week as well I put on attack at the start of the week and because the complexity of like Ireland's attacking system, you know, it doesn't happen by chance. It's down to everyone understanding the roles, having good skill set to be able to deliver on pressure. Um, and so that takes longer and harder to ingrain those habits than defense is difficult, obviously, but but you know, generally it's easier to organize people into a straight line and, and give them principles and how they connect. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so I'd always start my preseason, I'd always start the week towards the top, but I'd always gravitate towards defense because I do believe that the best teams win titles on the back of defence, you know, and history would tell you that in any sport, really. So you can't just be like, oh, it's going to be all out attack and let's not really pay attention to defence. So I'm probably unique in that there's not many, most teams have a dedicated attack coach, a dedicated defence coach. Um, and I sort of flip between the two. So, um, uh, which is great for me because I'm always thinking, geez, that was hard to defend. Let's put that into our attack or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Coaching is always uh, copying. It's uh, cribbing from everyone else. Uh, not that, that many uh, revolutionary ideas. Nick, I'm convinced that the Irish team actually has AirPods in their ears and they're saying things to each other because there's no way <laughs> that Ty Byrne and Ty Furlong can run with their size, looking like they're running or passing from either direction, and you never can tell the difference. Old guys called Ty have a, an invisible <laughs> psychic connection anyway, but you know, I, I think that... A guy like Peter Amani is a wonderful example of how the Irish team has developed because up until very recently, uh, Peter Amani was known as a line-out forward and a defensive player, especially at the breakdown. And you look at the way that his footwork and handling has developed in the current Irish system, which is Leinster-based, and I think that is a sign of the team's progression because you've got a guy into his early mid-30s here who's really probably playing the best balanced rugby of his entire career i think it's because as we see in his instagram peter amani is a great gardener and he has many sides <laughs> he's uh he's different i do think like, when he was I, digging up sang cane yeah if i found myself in uh, great trouble which i often do because my job is to get people out of trouble i would probably call peter i think he would be a great wingman if we had to dispose of evidence. Um, but uh, Peter, Peter Omani is a, a good example of, of how someone is a, a leader on a team 
Um, I, I could see him taking over at times. I know Sexton is the leader, but mm. but also Amani. And I think uh, James Ryan was appointed captain at some point, but then Peter kind of uh, leapfrogs him. Stuart, how do you pick a captain uh, and, and why is it so important in rugby as compared to some other sports? Uh, I think the media make it make it like like the most important thing. Um, I think the reality of um, great teams in, in in rugby is that it, 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 there is a shared leadership model. You know, there's no way you could survive without a good line-out caller, without a good um, ten who could call the plays. You know, the captain might be the hooker. You know, for example. So so you've got a defensive captain as well, probably, you know, so you've got four, five, six leaders within. I think Ireland have done that really well in terms of growing the leadership. Obviously, through our experiences at Leinster, that's helped, but you've got their international experiences now, um, have been together for so long. Um, but you need someone, you need someone who has the respect of the group and who is going to get selected, obviously, the respect of the coaching team as well. That's probably number one. Um, I'd say their ability... Um, they don't need to give inspirational speeches all the time, but they have a, a presence in the group as well. Um, and uh, um, they have a good understanding of the game. They're on the same page as the, the coaching team. Um, they've got a really good ability to manage the referee and, 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 and a good decision maker, you know, um, in terms of when to, when to press the button on the team and when to calm people down and how to get the best out of individuals, you know. So they're pretty... They're pretty unique, the excellent captains, because it's so hard to be all those things and be a great player at the same time, you know. So we mature as leaders, you know, into our late 30s, early 40s, you know, and we become really effective around that time. But, you know, we're asking people who are mid-20s to do really, really complex leadership tasks yeah. in front of 80,000 people and 10 million people watching on TV. So, um, and then host a media conference afterwards or immediately after the game and give, you know, succinct and articulate answers without dropping anyone in it. So it's, it's, it's challenging, you know, but uh, I think the co the captains of Ireland, you know, whether it's Johnny, I mean, say James Ryan's done it, Peter Mani's done it. They're all very similar in their personality type. And I think, um, you know, they're humble leaders um, and, uh, and most importantly, good people. You, you, uh, so I had two kinds of coaches growing up. I had the ones that wanted me to be the animal in the field, um that was before you know red cards but and then you had ones that are more like you where that you seemed always when i saw you um depicted constantly as tv likes to uh zone in on the coach and and watch you do everything you know dig for diamonds up your nose have a cross face but you never seemed to lose it like a like a Cheka or a rossi you were you were kind of um impassive and i wondered if um that was because like roger federer used to be a hothead and he learned to be calm, or were you always that kind of way, uh, more analytical, trying to understand the game? Yeah, and no, I, th I think I think I think um, yeah, the media create a um, a perception of you, and they can fuel that perception. So let's say I'm jumping up celebrating a try, and they come to me the following three seconds later, I'm actually back studying and thinking about the next thing. You know, they can easily skip the whatever. Yeah. You know, they can create. But having said that, I remember, yeah, I would be more. Like if you looked at my personality profile, I'd be more, I'd be quite analytical. Um, I'd be quite detail orientated. I'd be slightly more introvert than extrovert. Um, um, but I can, I can be that sort of like more extrovert person. But I definitely think um, one of the bits of feedback that uh, a captain gave me 
um, who's now a coach, ironically, he said, sometimes shoot, we want to see more ranges of emotion from you. You know, mm. show us when you're happy or show us when you're pissed off. And, um, and I think it was good feedback, really, because, you know, you've got to show your true self as well. And the pressure of the England job, you know, the scrutiny that you're under, maybe that just squeezed a bit of that out of me, you know, if I'm being honest. I think Leinster probably see a better version of me now. Um, and uh, they see that more range of emotion and more of the human side, really, you know, because I think if you said to my wife and my mates from school or from home, they'd say, geez, yeah, he's happy to have a good time and let his hair down and everything else. But, you know, when you're in that England job and you're under pressure, um, and I was, you know, young, I was 41. I'd got the job at 41 and yeah. it was a difficult situation to inherit. You know, there was lots of, lots of difficult things happening and uh, it was... Uh, it's hard to describe um, oh. um, the, the, the size of the job. You know, it, 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 it's it's a serious job, so you, <laughs> you're taking it seriously. You know, yeah. Taking it seriously. But, but exactly. I think, yeah, you, you know, definitely, uh, I think Leinster have seen that sort of better, more range of emotion, I think it's a good thing. Well, what I like about what you just, the story you just told is that you grew from talking to your players. And I, as I remarked earlier, I think the coach-player relationship is actually a very interesting one. It goes back to ancient Rome. Um, it's where apprenticeship happens. It's where someone asks you to do something that you literally think you cannot do. So Nick, I wonder um, in, this, in this kind of area, I know that you're someone who prizes uh, uh, learning and trying to get a little bit better. So speak to the, the, that relationship between coach and player. I, I've always thought it was one of those, you really get to know each other better than probably anyone can imagine in an educational environment, or I don't think the journalists somewhat understand it when they call for someone's head or ax this guy or chop this guy, they don't understand. You're friends, <laughs> you, you know things that maybe you haven't told your father. Well, <clears throat> I think it's what comes back to what Stuart was saying earlier about, uh, in a way, when he left England and went to Leinster, he, he also took a step down and a step back in order to reconnect, uh, because he'll tell you himself, I'm sure, that a lot of the work he had to do with England was media-based, it was outward-facing, and you can't really have the time and the uh, energy to connect with your players in the same way when so much of your energy is already being eaten yeah. in another area. And uh, it was the same for Graham Henry in Wales. He found himself facing outwards towards the, me uh, towards the media so often, and at such length that he lost the connection with the players and he had to go back to Auckland as a, a humble defence coach to rediscover it before becoming, you know, the All Blacks uh, head man a year later. But he had to seek the refresher at the, yeah. the wellspring, as it were. And um, I think all coaches really are the players at heart. You know, yeah. I mean, coaching is really an extension of playing, but you're on the other side of the fence, aren't you? But you all know that moment where you've been in that room together at the end of the game and you know that everybody's expended maximum effort and with a bit of luck, a plan's come to fruition as well, or a version of it. There's two things there, Nick, on what you said. Like one would be, like I put Wayne Smith in the same category, leaving New Zealand, yeah. going to Northampton, going back to New Zealand. That Northampton spell was mm. hugely significant in his recalibration and um, renewal. Um, the second thing I would say, I mean, if this is, this is to any players who are listening out there. <laughs> uh, but but, but it's, 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 it's taken from teaching. 
And um, there's a lot of my friends uh, who, who started teaching with me who were still teaching. So they get into like late 40s, early 50s. And um, there was a book I read about, about pe- pe- people, when you're teaching a group of say 15, 16 year olds, you don't appreciate the teacher until maybe 10 years later. You actually think, geez, that was a really important person in my life. Yeah. And they really made a significant difference and they believed in me, they trusted me, they made me feel special. And they, you know, they liked me as a person and they helped me grow and develop in ways I never even thought about at the time. Because, you know, the, the pupil leaves at 16, the teacher takes a new group of year sevens and they work through the school and everything else. So you never get, you never get as a teacher, you never get the feedback. You never get the feedback that thanks for what you've done, you've done a great job. Only if you bump into them in a the street, it might be a reunion and say, you know what, you're really, really impactful. And, um, and as a consequence, because you don't get that feedback loop, the, um, you begin to lose the passion for teaching because you don't get the feedback. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of people I speak who are teachers who are just not, not enjoying teaching anymore. And I'm absolutely certain if, 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 if more pupils had said at the time, thanks, yeah. miss, thanks, sir, for what you've done, for making a difference to my life, mm. I think that they'd still be like plowing the furrow and, and, and loving it. But I, I just think there's something about, it's the same with coaching. I think there is something about um and i try to say it to anyone i meet now um um because i know how it made me feel when a player said listen i I, I can have a conversation with the player and i'll say i'm asking them 101 questions about the tour or whatever else um and you'd say to the player anything for me any feedback for me anything we can do better Uh, and this one player turned around and went uh yeah i just want to say thanks for actually helping me become that island player and um and and all and all the work you did to yeah. To, to do that and you know what that was probably the most powerful thing anyone said to me in the whole of that year and that meant more more to me and but but you don't think like that when you're in the moment because you're just like getting on with playing, right. For, right. playing for your club or your country or whatever else you know what i mean so i just think it's really it's really important to stop and say and recognize the people that have helped and supported you a long way like my three mentors now so kevin bill and um brian my, i've made it i've made it absolutely priority of mine this off season to go and catch up with them either face-to-face arrange a zoom but you know there was a guy mal butterworth who was my teacher educator the guy I first when i first referenced it he's 82 years old now and i text him and say do you fancy coming out for a beer in uh, in headingley and it was brilliant i just want to say thanks for everything you did for me you know because you helped me become the coach i am now so yeah. it's just a little thing but it's such a big so it's so important my favorite story about um the intimacy of a coach and a player I was uh, selected as a 17-year-old to, to be the first captain who was English-speaking, not Afrikaans, in Western province. And uh, the coach was taking a big chance doing this. I was already controversial for my politics. I was floppy-haired. I had hair back then. I was uh, the latte-drinking Capetonian. And he was taking me into, you know, real Boer country. And he said, hey, you're going to have to pray tonight at the Bri. We have the fathers and the players. You're going to meet everyone. They don't like you. No one likes you. But you're going to pray. It's the first thing you're going to do. And I said, I'm not sure I can pray. And he said, uh, what do you mean? I go, um, Afrikaans is shit. And he says, uh, Afrikaans is shit, but you have to pray anyway. What are you really afraid of? And I said, I'm not sure I believe in God. And he said, now nah, you're talking. Now we're friends. Now we can have a beer together. We can have a discussion because I'm going to tell you God does exist and why. And, uh, you know, years later, kind of uh, at, his, at his funeral, you know, I'm speaking at the funeral, praying again. To me, there's a there's a symmetry of coach, coach to to player that doesn't exist in uh, in in outside sports. I think um, 
Olympians, elite sport, you're you're really looking at each other um, in a different way. I mean, I don't know if you yeah, see this. Uh, yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think the personal moments that you share. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing about sport. There's so much it teaches you about life. Rugby on the roar. So um, our sport faces the crossroads on a couple of things. One of them is whether we're more of an evasion illusion sport or if we're more of a collision contact sport. Uh, UFC and other mixed martial arts, the whole thing is built around bashing people's heads and, and they seem to be growing. But at the same time, rugby is uh, not able to escape the fact that we're the target of um, class action, litigation. Um, we're going down different ways. One of them is we're making the referee do too much. Do you see us being able to change the shape of the game so that it is more of an illusion of Asian sport? Or as we are bigger, faster, stronger, are we necessarily going to have to be in the super warning, this is dangerous, uh, and taking care of concussion? What do you think, Nick? I know this is not a simple question, but it seems like we're trying to we're trying to put a lot on referees or things in game time decisions, and then they come back 10 minutes later. You know, it took the NFL around, what, 70 or 80 years to become aware of concussion as an issue or uh, whatever it's called now, ECT. Yeah. And uh, in rugby, it's going to happen far faster because I, I think, in a way, rugby is added on to uh, what has already happened in the National Football League because the precedent is already there. And so people are already aware in terms of um, professional playing groups of, of composed of players who've already finished their careers and perhaps in their uh, early 40s, uh, late 40s. And we had Ryan Jones, who I knew who was a Welsh, Welsh captain, mm -hmm. only about, uh, what, seven or eight years ago. He's only 41 years old. He has a family and he's already experiencing memory loss and doesn't know people, can't remember things. It's horrible. Uh, yeah. When you get people of that profile already uh, experiencing these kind of uh, early onset sy symptoms at such a young age, it means things are going to come to the boil far quicker than they would have ever done in the National Football League. So I think it's something that's going to have to be addressed in the next five to ten years, short time frame probably. Mm -hmm. It seems like everything, so the, the breakdown itself and the tackle point is where things occur um, that are the most dynamic, the most difficult. I mean, look at the Irish uh, style of play. It requires so many rucks to be cleaned on time, the right height. As I always say, you know, taking off the plane, not landing the plane. So coming in low, um, knowing which position you're supposed to be in. How do you see, Stuart, this battle between the ruck builders the ruck destroyers. I looked at the box. South Africa, South Africa is basically destroying rucks. Um, maybe so is France. Uh, can you pull that off? Is it possible? Uh, yeah, so no, I mean, I mean, I did a presentation to the World Rugby Referees, maybe, I think it was for the November Internationals last year. Um, and, it, and, and it was basically my fear for the game that if, if we continually allow the defensive breakdown jacklers mm. to continue going down the route we're going down there's going to be a few there's going to be a few things going to happen one coach is going to start thinking you know we're better off without the ball therefore we'll just kick it all the time so the product becomes diminished because we end up with this kick fest that you know reminds me a bit of the lions south africa series you know where 
there was no winner really, even though there was a winner, there was no winner in terms of rugby. Um, so, um, and then the second thing is, you know, a lot of the injuries, you know, occur in the tackle contest, but also a lot of injuries occur at the breakdown. Uh, and with legal behavior, some of them is exactly. legal. But it seems, it seems yeah. a simple, like, like yeah. it seems obvious to me, like we, we would always coach uh, Leinster. We want to play to space. It is an evasion game. Now, obviously there's going to be elements of contact within that, you know, but we're trying to get shoulder tackles. We're trying to run good lines. We're always looking to play to space. Like we're looking to run out from a kickoff. We're looking to play to the edge of a scrum. We're looking to have a starter player that gets us straight to the edge and gets the opposition moving around. The last thing we want to do is to start running into brick walls and and try to power our way over. Because in Ireland, we don't have mm. huge players like South Africa do or Will Skelton's running around. They just don't exist, you know, genetically. So, yes. so we have to play the game of movement and um, uh, play to space all the time. And I think... I think that was A, makes it a better product to watch. I think B, we want ball in play over 40 minutes. Um, so we want better athletes, which are less heavy and um, uh, you don't need to be as powerful. We need to be more aerobically fit and anaerobically fit. Um, and then, um, but in order for all that to happen, we need to police the, the defensive breakdown. One of the key things I was talking about was the assist tackler has to be legal. Like if, if someone's making a tackle and... I'm the assist tackler and I'm helping the tackle player go to floor, showing no clear release and going straight on the ball and getting rewarded for it. And maybe a second guy's coming in. So you've got tackler plus two jacklers and the referee continue rewards that behavior, which is illegal. Um, then, then we're in trouble because you start thinking, well, we're better off not having the ball. We'll kick the ball. And the next thing we'll be thinking is we need to fly into this breakdown to get these guys off the ball who are illegal in the first place. So you're, launching players in it's just um i just think it's a it's a relatively straightforward solution from a referee perspective and i do think a lot of progress has been made in this area it's the order of events is tackler get out of the way and make sure you're not impeding the the clear outs um and then the assist tackler must show clear release if they referee that well then what you'll find is um there'll be more continuity the ball in play will be higher. You'll have more multi-phase rugby, you know, mm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think that's the focus area, really. If And we get distracted sometimes by all the other nuances of the game that we need to look at because of the complexity. But if we zone in on that, um, I do think the product will be better. It'll be more an invasion game. We'll, we'll reduce the sort of need for just power-based teams to win on, only. And uh, it'll be more attractive to watch. Nick is about, so just to add to yeah. that in relation to what we were saying about head trauma, I'm sure a lot of the head trauma occurs because you've got a guy trying to put his head in to pick up the ball defensively. Right. So if there are various things in place to discourage him from making that action, you're not going to get so many uh, you know, chronic actions over the top of that tackle ball with a guy put his head below his, sh his shoulders trying to pick it up and two guys coming from the other side trying to sweep him away off it. So that is the kind of little picture that you want to start dismantling, really. Otherwise, it's very difficult to see how rugby can avoid, you know, just having a, a, a litter of head collisions in these sort of situations because people are operating at force, you know, with great velocity, and they can't see what's coming if they're a defender because they've got their head down between their exactly. legs half the time. So. They've got the right posture. Nick, uh, so we I think you've looked at this issue of how 
the percentage of the attacking team or the feeding team keeping their line out, keeping their scrum, um, winning the restart as a receiver, and then um, you know keeping their rucks. I mean, it's it's higher than ever before. Do we run the risk of becoming too much like a league game or NFL where you know it's, it's very rare to lose the ball when in possession? Well, I think it's a question of, I think this is related to what Steele was saying, of how, how the contest occurs. Mm-hmm. So how do you want the contest to occur at what passes for a ruck nowadays? <laughs> at the moment, a ruck consists of a guy trying to pick the ball off the ground with his hands and guys trying to remove him off it. Now, if you, have, if you really want to keep everybody on their feet on both sides of the ball at a ruck, you can't allow so much of that initial action of going to pick up the ball with your hands because people are going to fall over <laughs> and, and treat it more as uh, I'm probably there's less danger involved in a counter up than there is in a jackling attempt, for example. So how can we build that picture into a ruck where people are going to either ruck on the uh, attacking side or counter ruck on the defensive side rather than try to pick it up with their hands? I don't think there's enough counter-rucking. When you look at success, uh, intelligent counter-rucking, that it's very successful, mm-hmm. partly because people are not expecting it, partly because the, the setup uh, around the ball on the attacking side of the ruck is, is, is it just, it cannot withstand real pressure of th- uh, two locks and a big six coming over. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it looks like to me that that could be something in the next year's World Cup that a successful counter-rucker could, uh, could really pull something out of the hat. Um, and likewise in scrums, how can we build a picture of scrums which aren't going to end up in penalties? No, I like that. <laughs> yeah. That's bread and butter. Because mates with Franz Malherber, that's why. Yes, he's plus 35 in penalties over his career. It's amazing. Um, and having a good time doing it. No, so, you know, the whole thing, Stuart, you were talking about winning space. So obviously teams like South Africa, I think the French too, they they um, they win space by um, they find space by winning the contact. So win the contact uh, three or four times, and then suddenly voila, there's space. Whereas um, I think Ireland is playing to space earlier in that process, or even actually occupying space that is real space. You look at so when you walk into a rugby pitch, if you go to a really big a stadium, there's so much space. Um, you watch, uh, I was at Twickenham and it's, you know, this massive space. You see Ireland preparing for England. They're drilling. The Irish players were doing practices so different from England. England was still doing set piece practice before the game started. And Ireland was doing, I mean, they were finding space even in the practice. So I was wondering about this. Do you teach from, from early days, from teenager on this idea of space? Is that where you're going with this uh, Irish model? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, there's always space. There's always space. Like the space between defenders, like if the defense is still too wide, then we'll play tight lines and we'll get this guy to bite in. Then there's another space that emerges on the outside. If they then start thinking, right, they're playing through us, so we've got to tighten our defensive line, then there's space on the outside. Yeah. If they think, oh, well, we've got space on the outside, so we'd better pull someone from the backfield. Well, there's space in the backfield because there's only one in the backfield now. You know what I mean? So it's getting the players to understand, like, if, if you as a coach are very prescriptive and you're constantly saying we're playing to targets, you stop looking for space. If you constantly say we're looking for space and we're going to play to space and you educate them where the space is and how to manufacture it to get, to get the ball there and, uh, or when you play against different defensive systems 
um, you you give them the tools to do that. That's where the magic's found, really. Yeah, Nick, and, you- uh, and I think I think um, one thing that is really effective about the model over here is that we join the dots between the academy program, the schools program, and the senior program. So, for example, last Monday I did a coach development session with the top schools and clubs coaches in the Leinster province. And the whole notion was to talk about how we create space with our attacking system, you know. So the, the, the trickle-down effect happens throughout the system. And then the young players are already coming into the academy programme. Whereas, like, there's teams I know um, who coach... We're going to kick up until the halfway line. We're not even going to think about playing to space or running the ball. We're just going to kick the ball up to the halfway line. Then we might run the ball a bit. And when we get closer, and we're going to more. So you've got this like little window of about 25 metres where we can actually run and do anything. We've no. um, been re-watching that English Premiership final again, Stuart. Yeah, that's my point. You know, but, 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 but it's, a, it's a way that can work in rugby. You know, it can work yeah. that way. And, um, you know, South Africa, um, Wales, you know, the Test Series, um, it, got, it was better than I thought it was going to be. But, you know, if you go back to that semi-final in the World Cup, um, South Africa, Wales, and compare that to England, New Zealand. It was like watching two different sports, mm-hmm. one day after the other. Um, and then maybe that's the beauty of the sport. You talk about NRL, and maybe the the um, the NRL model is everyone does the same thing. You like, there's so many times in rugby league. I mean, don't get me going about 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 it because I think I've learned so much from rugby league. But there's definitely times I've gone, oh my god, why don't they just like move the ball from the scrum and don't worry about completions all the time, try and keep the ball alive in the tackle. So. You know, um, uh, but 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 generally, um, maybe the beauty of our sport is the fact you can win the game in different ways. But um, and we wouldn't well, ever the, cl- the clash of styles, which which yeah, can yeah, be but, 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 uh, intriguing as long as as it's excellent. What would worry me? What would worry me is if the only style that can possibly win is the power style that involves um, kicking the ball and playing the attritional power game. So you're relying on penalties, you're relying on three points, you're relying on your mall and your pick and go game. You know that's. Yeah. That means that means the only teams that are ever going to win are going to be your South Africans and you know your, your likes of a Tier Two nation or even a, an Argentina or an Ireland you know are going to be powered out of the game and that should never be the case. But it could be in stretches. Like obviously, a tournament uh, you have to win so many in a row that the abrasive style and depth becomes vital. I mean, even in soccer, you have the same teams win in the end usually because it's just suddenly you have to win so many in a row. But uh, obviously, Ireland just proved that you can go to New Zealand, the the graveyard of so many tourists, and and do it. So you would think that, like you said, co- coaches copy. So you're going to have people um, want to copy the Irish model. But I would think you have to. It's hard to coach decision making. Uh, it probably takes longer than just getting fit. Am I wrong? Well, I think there's a synergy there between the pattern and the. Di- the decisions the individual actually has to make within the pattern. Mm. Like if you watch our Ireland's attack or Leinster's for that matter, you'll never see a player making a long pass if he can make a shorter, easier one and, and include someone else in the game. And a lot of Ireland's passes are very short passes. So they're not pressuring people to make decisions that they can't back up with their skill set. They're asking them to make decisions which are going to be accurate yeah. include more players in the game yeah. and also fulfill the pattern yeah. like, like that that Irish try that you're talking about was set up by two very simple phases and then basically the Irish backs knowing where to regroup 
whereas the All Blacks were still defending on the other side of the field, five on three, and suddenly you found there were four Irish inside backs opposed by two props, uh, David Havili and Bowden Barrett, who was still running back into position. Yeah. So it was understanding of the system and the fact that they didn't have to make no pass in that in that that whole period of play went over more than about two meters. So obviously, like when the Bulls beat Leinster, there was nothing ugly about that. It was different, but um, it's the clash of styles. At the test level, it seems like parody is like a rock, paper, scissors, where sometimes you have two rocks hitting each other. It's horrible. Like Wales, South Africa is just kind of a, no one wants to watch that. But um, you'd still like to see, well, I'd like to see box versus Ireland. It's going to happen in the pool. Uh, I would imagine that's going to be interesting for people to watch as a neutral. Don't you think, Stuart? Like, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. I mean, I mean, the box have got a very aggressive defensive system. They'll be thinking, right, we can't give Ireland time to play all these shapes. We're going to get out the back. You know, we're going to defend high. And Ireland's challenge, as we find at Leinster, is when you get, get thrown against South African teams, Welsh teams, Scottish teams, yeah. French teams, English teams. You know, part of, part of the beauty of the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, and certainly the team I'm coaching, is that you're having to um, create strategies to play lots of different styles. And I'll come back to my New Zealand point, is that if you're only ever playing against the same sort of style with the same coaches and the same ideas, um, the lack of diversity of thought and the lack of um, real understanding from A, the coaching perspective and B, the player's perspective of how the different styles can be um, evolved and also combated, um, then uh, I think it's a limitation, you know. So, so yeah, we, we face, you know, we'll face South African teams in, in the URC and they defend differently and it's hard, hard work. But there's, there's still space, you know, space on the edges against South Africa, isn't there? You see Wales exploited them there and there's kick space and you can make the the edge defenders look very vulnerable indeed you know it's high risk high reward for south africa um uh, and most of the time they succeed but i wouldn't say it's it's destined to always be the case it's one of the it's one of the hardest positions to defend in a south african in a team is uh 13 14 um 14 can usually hide a little bit but in the box system they have to make a decision before they're ready on whether to push up like the spear of an umbrella or start drifting back and using the touchline. So, yeah, it's it's sometimes... I mean, it's very, I mean the one thing, the advantage that South Africa is, look, they've got what I would call double defenders. So people like Fatty Clerk, Cheslin Colby, these guys can, def- they can, they can make up for a miss because of their athleticism. And, and like we played a couple of South African teams this year and normally we would make a line break and put the teams away. Um, the athleticism of the South African outside backs meant that they bailed themselves out of trouble, you know, more often than not. And I, I watched um, the under-20 tournament recently in Italy, and I saw the South Africa under-20s were very, very good um, in that balance of the power, size that they have up front, but the athleticism, some of the outside backs is... Yeah. You know, if they get, I, if they get, if they get it right consistently, yeah. you know, and, and with good coaching, um, South Africa are always going to be a force in world rugby, but... They could, they could have a multi-layered approach to the game that can win the game in different ways. The irony of the South African resistance to uh, transformation and breaking the colour barrier was always ridiculous on a rugby level because if you exactly. bring, you bring in groups it's that are... Unbelievable athletes. So um, 
we have to wrap this up. It's been wonderful. We could talk for two more hours, but um, Nick and, and Stuart, I want to ask, my question really is how do you coach consistency? I'll, I'll give you my top five off the top of my head. One, I would say um, cohesion. So I'd say cohesion of selection and understanding and uh, combinations and coaching philosophy. So, um, you know, that, that level of cohesion and, and understanding, particularly internationally, when you've only got the players for certain windows, um, I would say, go back to your decision-making point, um, a coaching team that has the capacity to help the players understanding where the space is and give them the frameworks to execute the space um, and then make the right decisions on the back of scanning and seeing the pictures. And, and if, you, if you do that on a repeated basis within your session design and your session plan and your, on your coaching, you will achieve consistency of execution as long as the core skills are practiced at the same time. So you need to develop your, your core skill, your catch pass and the basic skills, as well as the, the consistency of seeing and executing space by scanning and understanding where that is. Um, I think um, diversity of opinion, I think is important in um, creating a high performing team because, because you want those ideas. Like I was very lucky, like at Leinster. So we've got myself from England, Leo from Ireland, Robin McBride from Wales has worked with Warren Gatlin for 13, 14 years. Felipe Contepoma from Argentina. You know, it's such a brilliant diversity group. And we've just, Felipe's just left and we've now got Andrew Goodman just coming from the Crusaders. I mean, how good is that? You know, you've got a, a guy leaving to coach Argentina, you've got a guy coming in who's coached the Crusaders, coming mm. to Lent. I mean, it's gold dust, really, isn't it? So, so I think that's really important, which is back to my point about um, why do I think, you know, Ireland have done well, but also maybe why New Zealand have maybe struggling a little bit. I think mm. they'd be the sort of main the main things for me. How about you, Nick? I don't need to add to that. I mean, I think it comes down to something very simple, really. It's just a repetition of what you love to do and a repetition of what you can learn to love to do. And relating back to what you were saying about the value of teaching about half an hour ago, I, I recently bumped into a, a student of mine at university I used to teach Shakespeare to. And we spent many frustrating weeks trying to plough through texts and leaf through pages and they all looked pretty bored and so was I. And one day I just threw the book out of the window and I said, okay, we're just gonna go and see a Shakespeare play now. So I hired a minivan and about 15 of us all went up to Stratford for a whole day, didn't get back till three in the morning. And after that, it became a burgeoning thing where up to 30 or 40 students would go up to Stratford and watch the plays. And the students said to me, what transfer, transformed Shakespeare for us was watching it and being a part of it, like playing the game of rugby. And this guy said to me now, he said, the only way I can enjoy a Shakespeare play now is by watching it. I can't read it, he said. But I have to see it in action. <laughs> so how can you get consistency by repeating things that you love to to do and repeating things that you can learn to love to do and that is the joy isn't it of, of being in action on a rugby field the roar that was Leinster and former England coach Stuart Lancaster, along with the Raw's resident expert analyst Nick Bishop, who joined Harry Jones for a rugby chat in this bonus episode 30 of the Raw Rugby Podcast. Brett McKay with you, and Harry is back with me. That was 
an excellent chat, mate. I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah, I did too. And, and Nick Bishop was uh, furtively hiding in his utility room from his beagles. <laughs> apparently, his, apparently his beagles don't let him uh, talk. Uh, so Nick Bishop is an interesting analyst because he's um, he's 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 kind of cheeky, kind of slyly humorous at all times, uh, but he has passion, and it's, it's yeah. quiet passion. Yeah. And then you have Stuart Lancaster, who spent a good twenty minutes quizzing me before we even got on. And you could see that he was the teacher still, the academy yes. leader. Like, what, what are you? What are you made of? Well, how, what kind of business do you do, Harry? Uh, where does it take you? How does that work? And he was yeah. literally giving me an interview. And I realized how likable both of them are. But also, I think you see from Stuart Lancaster, a, a really deep guy, you know? Yes. Uh, self, self-deprecating, not like yep. the, the Eddie, Eddie Jones, Rossi Erasmus type. This is a guy who who builds things and, and is patient with them. Uh, and I'd really, we had a, we had a huge outline. We never touched yeah. any, we didn't touch any of it. We just talked. Yeah. And, and, and it felt, it felt like that. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the ever the ex teacher. And there was that, that fascinating part of the conversation where he talked about his, his teaching background, the thirst for knowledge and, and all that. And Nick mentioned the similarities between Stuart and uh, Graham Henry. And immediately I thought listening to that, while I put it together, mm. is that um, you think of some of the best coaches around. You know, Jake White was a teacher. Um, Laurie Fisher was a teacher. So many of the best teachers going around have teaching backgrounds, um, and I think that's that's it's fascinating that that theme has carried all the way through professional rugby, um, and it's it's going to be really really interesting to see whether that carries on or whether people will come in and just have always been a career coach. That's that's going to be an interesting development, I think. What, what do you want people to take out of that conversation, having just heard it? Well, I think in top sports, there's the perception that, you know, nice guys cannot finish first, that um, uh, or, or that, you know, when the axe fell for Stewart, that it somehow decimated him. I mean, mm. he's actually got a solid core. You can tell that he is good with himself and his people and the people around him. Um I'm sure it's done, yeah. but 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 he didn't uh, belabor the point. He was he's so interested in people and what makes them tick. And uh, I think when he gets a group of people together and tries to train them, he's just having fun. Yeah. I mean, he's actually in his element. And I think Nick Bishop's the same thing. I think he gets up every day looking forward to his little pictures and his diagrams. <laughs> <laughs> and as Stuart yeah. said, Nick Nick tells a story. Nick got yeah. that that gig just by writing a good book. So, yeah. you know, there's so many places for all of us in rugby. And uh, no, I, I couldn't have been more pleased with how it all turned yeah. out. And, and I think he, he didn't say as much, but I think listening to him talk about how he got back into coaching and how he was actually quite happy to go into an assistant role, I, I think Stuart Lancaster now believes he's a better coach than he was when he, even when he was moved on as the England coach. I, I think he... Is quite sure he's a better better coach now. In fact, yeah, I think he has more time to reflect and study, and I think he yeah. likes that. I think yeah. there's something about him that really likes to take something and really methodically uh, do it. So you look at Ireland now, and it's a reflection of Stuart Lancaster. Yes, yeah. there are other people involved. Yeah. You know, his former assistant Andy Farrell, but really, I think he took the the, the schoolboys around that area in Dublin and really tried to find a way to teach. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's fa- it's fantastic. It's a fantastic chat. Well done. Um, and that is episode 30 done of the Raw Rugby Podcast. We'll be back on Sunday with another instant reaction after the Wallabies' second match of their Argentinian tour to kick off the Rugby Championship. It's the Raw Rugby Podcast with me, Brett McKay, and Harry Jones every week on the raw.com.au, Australia's biggest sporting debate, the home of all your favourite international rugby analysis, opinions, and conversations. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your ears next week.